when I was a boy, I used to love to watch the garbage men come to my house. I found it fascinating that the guy would load up uh, the garbage and then he would jump on a little platform and hang on and ride the outside of the truck. I just thought it looked cool. I loved it. So I would watch these guys and, and I think you get the idea of how this system works, right? You accumulate the trash and you pay people to come in to take it away. And that's what should happen. Gone. All right. Now, assuming that nothing was thrown away that had a high value, like, you know, the retainer story, mom, I just threw it away, I don't have it anymore, you know, assuming that that didn't happen, does anyone really sit around and worry about the trash? Hey, honey, do you, uh, do you remember the pizza box from last Thursday? Yes, it went out with the trash, why? Never mind, I think it's still here. I feel like it's here somewhere, you know? And so you start looking around for it. Where's that pizza box? Feels like it's here. And your wife comes downstairs and, and finds you weeping at the table. Just weeping. What's wrong? I think, I think the pizza box is still here. <laughs> Honey, the guys took it away. All right, who does that? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Once the trash is taken away, it's gone and taken care of. Our story begins in a little town called Bethany, not to be confused with the better-known town, Bethany, that's near Jerusalem. Verse 28 tells us that this Bethany is across the Jordan to the east where archaeologists believe that John was baptizing. Well, what's going on there? Verse 19 And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Well, verse 24 notes that the group was from the Pharisees and they asked John in verse 22, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So let's get a background to this interrogation. All right, who are the Jews? Well, the term Jews represents the antagonistic Jews that oppose Jesus. And John uses this word a lot more than the other gospel writers. These Jews, probably the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Court of Judaism, sent this committee to John. Well, who are the priests? These were the Jewish religious leaders descended from Aaron who offered sacrifices and performed religious duties in the temple. And they were accompanied by the Levites, who descended from the tribe of Levi. And they assisted the priests as basically their right-hand men in the temple duties, certain rituals and duties of the temple. The priests and Levites were chosen as this delegation sent from the Pharisees to John. Well, who are the Pharisees? No, they were a powerful, strict, uh, political, religious group of elites and experts in the scriptures. They were rule guys. They loved the rules. Letter of the law type of guys. Men who measured themselves by outward appearance, by outward obedience. They were enemies of grace. Enemies of grace. To them, life was about earning God's approval through conformity to certain rules. Not receiving it through grace. 
and they harassed anything that smelled like it was hostile to their religious understanding, the way that they defined religion. Well, John the Baptist smelled fishy to them. Um, he, he was suspicious, hence this delegation is sent to him. Well, there was a buzz around John's ministry, and his popularity was rapidly growing. Some thought he might actually be the Messiah. And so John's influence and leadership sparked interest from all of Judaism. It began with a question, who are you? Who John the Baptist really was. His life began with a priest named Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, who were righteous before God. Old in age, they had faced a really painful struggle and problem, one that many couples fear. Elizabeth could not have children. Zechariah prayed for children. And one day as he was serving in the temple, an angel appeared to him and told him that his prayer was answered or would be answered. And Elizabeth would have a son named John. And this is what the angel said, Luke 1, 14 through 17. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Imagine being a dad hearing that about your son. Zechariah questioned the angel. The angel didn't like it, so the angel struck him mute, took his voice away like that. I guess we shouldn't talk back to angels. A little while after, all that happened actually because he didn't believe. He didn't believe, and the angel took his voice. A little while after, Mary received news that she was pregnant with Jesus, and naturally, as a mom would be, she was excited to share the news, and so she visits Elizabeth. When Mary greeted Elizabeth, John, from inside the tomb, heard Mary's voice and jumped for joy. He could sense, even from the womb, that the Messiah was there. Now, imagine the forerunner to the Messiah and the Messiah in one place, God forming and knitting them together in their mother's womb. And there they were. Amazing. The day came when Elizabeth gave birth to John. Of course, they were happy. Zechariah regained his voice, and people began to ask of John, what then will this child be? And so Zechariah, his proud papa, prophesies, Luke 1, 76 through 79, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of a death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Well, John grew up. He became strong in spirit. John was a little bit eccentric. He was a little unusual. He didn't fit the religious mold. Uh, God made him a, sp a spirit-filled preacher in the wilderness. 
kind of an interesting place to send a man. Um, He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. I'm guessing he wasn't a runway model. Probably not showing off Mr. Camel there. He didn't eat normal food. Instead, he ate locusts and wild honey. And I looked this up. Locusts are actually high in protein and fat, uh, but a little high in cholesterol. So maybe John was on Lipitor. Who knows? Under the recommendation of the angel, he never drank Merlot, never drank Shiraz or a Pinot Noir. Even though he was a bit unusual, this man was really influential, an incredible leader. He had a huge following and a successful ministry focused on repentance, sin, cleansing from sin, baptism, and the gospel. He baptized a lot of people, and one of which was, most famously, Jesus John was controversial. He confronted the religious elites, calling them a brood of vipers and warning them to flee from God's wrath. Well, that didn't make him extremely popular with some people. However, people like tax collectors, people like prostitutes, the outcasts of society loved what John had to say. He knew powerful people like King Herod who feared John because he was righteous and holy, but Herod gladly listened to him, though he, did not, though, though he actually sentenced him to prison, so I guess he wanted, there, wanted him there, and uh, he actually beheaded John at one point because he made a really stupid and careless promise at a dinner party. John's head was gruesomely delivered on a silver platter to a very powerful woman. Sometimes being faithful uh, brings opportunities to suffer, perhaps even die for Christ. John was powerful, influential, a godly leader who served God faithfully. Do you know what Jesus said about John? Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was an incredible man, but there were a few things that John absolutely was not. What John the Baptist was not. In verse 20, John responds to the priests and Levites. Take a look. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Verse 20 says he did not deny, or in other words, he did not say, look, I, I don't really know if I'm the Christ or not. That's what this is saying. He was very clear. He was very dogmatic. I am not the Christ. Well, because of his leadership, because of his ministry, some began to wonder if he was the Christ. Mark 1.7 recounts the force of his confession. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. As influential as he was, as much of a leader as John was, he was unworthy to even stoop down and untie Christ's dirty sandals. Everything about John's life was preparation for Christ, was pointing to the real Messiah. Even his water baptism prepared the way for Christ's baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, the delegates keep pressing in verse 21. What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Now, wait a second. I thought he was Elijah. If you know your Bible, 
It, it says he is. Malachi prophesied, before I will send you, or behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Jesus said John fulfilled that prophecy. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, and then again in chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus said John was Elijah. So why did John say, I'm not Elijah? Well, first of all, the Jews misunderstood Malachi 4.5. Since Elijah never died, he was carried off into heaven, they probably thought he would simply return. He would simply come back. Secondly, John was not Elijah reincarnated because the Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. Uh, thirdly, and perhaps most significantly, the angel that spoke with Zechariah in Luke 1 said, John will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. So John was not Elijah himself, but rather Elijah in the prophetic sense, in spirit and in power. Both John and Jesus were correct in what they were saying. You can reconcile those two different statements. Well, the committee kept pressing in verse 21. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, you have to understand a little bit about biblical history. So we got to go back because their question is uh, referencing Deuteronomy 18.15 where it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Then in verse 18, God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. Now, we know that these are messianic prophecies. They're referring to the coming of the Messiah because Acts 3 and Acts 7 clarify that it's not talking about John as the prophet. It's talking about the great and final prophet, Jesus Christ. So the committee is essentially asking, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the one, the prophet? And once again, John said, no. Well, what would happen if you went into uh, Target wearing a red polo shirt and khaki pants? Now, excuse me, could you tell me where the 9-volt batteries are? Someone's probably going to assume that you're working there because that's how Target employees act. Has that ever happened to you? You're in a store and someone's like, excuse me, could you tell me where? And you're like, what? do I look like I work here or something? Um, someone asks you for some help to locate something because you look like you work there. A, a colored polo shirt doesn't make you an employee and a successful ministry doesn't make you the Messiah. The priests and Levites asked John direct and intentional questions, but they really weren't ready to actually hear his answers and what he had to say. John didn't fit into their system, and so they just disregarded what he had to say. They didn't listen closely enough. They didn't want to follow the sign to the destination. Well, everyone is looking for a functional Savior. Everybody. You, me, the culture, musicians, Hollywood, everyone is looking for a functional savior and everyone has a system which they believe contains that functional savior. 
Well, because of hardness of heart, so many people just reject Jesus because he doesn't fit into their system. He doesn't fit their savior preference. They would like to go on looking for a savior in another place, one that perhaps seems more fun, one that is different, one that fits them. Well, these men that came to John were trapped inside of a system, their own system, and they examined others instead of examining themselves. They refused to look beyond their system to the life-changing truth of John's answer. It wasn't about John. It wasn't about a system or protecting yourself. It was about Jesus Christ coming into the world to save sinners, and they just couldn't get that. You see, I really believe that everybody has a system. They look at the world through certain lenses. When you take the alcoholic, someone who has excessive drinking patterns, and you ask, what savior are you functionally turning to? What do you believe will actually deliver you from the pain that you're facing in your life and that you want relief from? And their answer is, I turn to alcohol. That's my system. That's my comfort zone. That's where I feel my Savior lives. Some people find it in religious things like church attendance and stuff. Now, church attendance is great, but if you find your Savior in your ability to live religious rules, your Savior is yourself and your own ability to live that system. Fame, power, money, popularity. You know, it, it's, it's really, when you dissect what popularity is and the, the, the quest for people to accept you, the quest to have 6.7 million hits on Facebook or Twitter people just like crazy is rooted in you wanting to find your functional savior in, in something that centers around you. You take validation by what other people say of you. And that's a really dangerous position to live in because you're trapped in that system that can never give you the relief and the salvation that your heart so longs for. You never find it there. You always are just like running from one savior to the next, trying to find it, finding your new thing, ultimately recognizing right before you is a savior who actually saves. His name is Jesus. Do we get it? I mean, do we get what John was trying to say or are we just stuck in our own system turning to other functional saviors that can't save us? Do we actually this morning want to hear the truth that God has to say? He has something to say. Are our hearts humble and willing and joyful to receive whatever he's ready to say? Whatever it means for us, whatever it calls us to do, whatever, however it, we need to respond, don't we want that, the truth? John wasn't the one. He was only a faithful sign that pointed to the one. So let's look at what John actually said. What did John actually say? John came to bear witness, and here it is. John said he was the prophet sent from God to prepare the way for God. Excuse me. Voice 23. Uh, voice 23. I'm sure it's a nice voice. Verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John clearly said, I am the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. 
I'm the forerunner to the Messiah. He's coming. John was the loud voice, the loud declaration saying, open it up. Give him a straightaway because he is on the move and he's coming. John said that Jesus held high rank. Now, John was really successful, yet he never used his success to masquerade as the Christ, as something that he was not. He wasn't the Christ, he wasn't Elijah, he wasn't the prophet. And yet, the Jews question, where's this guy getting his authority? Look at verse 5. Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John's baptism was of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And that baptism pointed to something greater, the baptism with the Holy Spirit by Jesus. Jesus is the point. One scholar said, all John can do is administer the sign, water. The Messiah, he alone, can bestow the thing signified, the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. John only pointed, John only directed to something greater, which was the baptism that comes by the hand of Jesus, by the word of Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. Well, John said that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at Jesus. Look at the Savior. There he comes. There he is. He is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world who can actually do something about your sinful life. He's saying, look at Jesus. Here is what years of temple sacrifices pointed to. What years of temple sacrifices could not accomplish because he accomplished it and the lamb is here. The final sacrifice is here. Do you understand the significance of verse 29? Does it create joy in you? Let me help, help that along here. In Genesis 22, God told Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, the son of promise, the son that he loved, and kill him as a sacrifice to God. Abraham got up early, loaded the donkey, took Isaac and two other young men and started the journey. Well, they traveled several days, and so Abraham had a lot of time to think about what God was asking him to do. Interestingly, on the third day, Abraham and Isaac left base camp together to worship God. Abraham knew what was coming. This was it. And Isaac on the way asked his dad, my father, behold, the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? I must have just stabbed Abraham in the heart. Dad, where's the lamb? He didn't even know. What would you say if you were Abraham in that moment? Abraham asked Isaac, or answered Isaac, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. How true he would. When they arrived at the place where God directed Abraham, build an altar. 
He bound his son. He laid him up on the altar. And he clenched the knife to kill his son. And the angel of the Lord, which I believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, says, do not lay your hand on the boy. Abraham trusted God and God provided a sacrifice, a ram caught in the thicket instead of his son. That day, the ram took the blade, not the son. No, Isaac lived, and that ram foreshadowed a greater lamb that was coming. What we need to see is that God provided a lamb as atonement for sin, as the power to actually and really remove our sin. And as the hand of God's wrath and judgment was stretched out against us, deserving death, For our sin, Jesus Christ stops the death blow by climbing onto that altar, onto the cross, in our place, to be the lamb that takes away our sin. Jesus is the lamb. And pay attention, my friends, because the lamb has come. And he's taken our sin away. Exodus 12 introduces the Passover feast. Every household of Israel took a year-old male lamb without blemish and kept it with them. And at twilight, on the 14th day, they slaughtered the lamb. They spread the lamb's blood on the door frames so God would pass over them as he came through Egypt, killing everyone without the mark of the blood of the lamb. The lamb died They were spared. Every one of those Passover lambs pointed directly to a greater, transcendent lamb and a greater sacrificial death. This is why the shout of heaven in Revelation 5.12 is worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Behold Jesus Christ who was taking away the sin of the world. Now what does it mean to say that he was taking away the sin of the world? Always be careful not to impose a view that you have on the scripture. But instead allow the Bible to to, uh, direct and inform your beliefs, to shape your beliefs, to change your mind in accordance with what God wants us to know. The term world used in verse 29 is a very diverse word. It can mean different things in different contexts. So what we want to do is understand what world means in verse 29, in the context of 29. Verse 29 is rooted in thousands of years of history. God chose Israel was among Israel, gave his revelation and law to Israel, gave the sacrificial system to Israel, and blessed Israel. For thousands of years, everything was about Israel. Then Jesus shows up. The covenant broadened. It wasn't about ethnic or national Israel or circumcision. It was all about faith in Christ. Everyone who trusted in Christ was Israel. Paul talks about that in Romans 9. So what's the point? To say the Lamb of God was taking away the sin of the world is to say he was taking away the sin not only of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles or the nations. Aren't we glad that the Lamb takes away the sins of the nations and not just the Jews? 
We must understand world in the context of thousands of years of Jewish history. The cross of Christ is not a bigoted cross. Though the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, God saves men and women from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Matthew Henry wrote, the legal sacrifices had reference only to the sins of Israel to make atonement for them. But the Lamb of God was offered to be a propitiation for the sin of the whole world. A sacrifice in the place of, to absorb the wrath of God for the sins of those from all nations, tribes, tongues. The gospel is not about Jew or Gentile or black and white or ethnic anything. It's about faith in the Lamb of God. And that substitute, that Lamb, died for everyone who believes, no matter what ethnicity. For a moment, just think about your past. What haunts you? What keeps you awake at night or gives you that sinking feeling when your mind drifts and remembers? Is there anything in your life right now that you are ashamed of, that you run from, that you stuff and hide? A pet sin, something you wouldn't want anybody to know. Guess what, folks? We all have them. Something will come to your mind if you think hard enough. When you trust Christ, your sin is completely taken away. Removed from you. Do you believe the Lamb of God takes sin away or is your sin too much for Him to handle? Too big for God. You have to believe that your junk has been carried to the curb and hauled away. Paul said, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. What Peter wrote is 100% true. By grace, through faith in Christ alone, we were ransomed from the futile ways by the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He really has appeared once for all, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as Hebrews 9.26 says. Listen, if you are holding on to your sin and guilt and shame and pain and refuse to trust that Christ has dealt with it, you are essentially saying, Jesus, you are not the lamb. Your substitutionary death for me was ineffective inefficient and impotent to save me from this, whatever this may be. The gospel says that in Christ you are fully forgiven. The gospel says as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The gospel says God blots out your transgressions for his own sake and he will not remember your sins. The garbage has been taken away. I wonder on their way back what that conversation was like between Abraham and his son Isaac. Uh, Dad, were you really going to kill me? Uh, yeah. Well, I'm sure glad the ram showed up. 
Do you think the ram produced joy in Isaac? How did Isaac look back upon that lamb that day that saved his skin? A few more things John said. John said his water baptism was to reveal Jesus Christ to Israel. Look at verse 31. John didn't reason his way to knowing God. It wasn't something he just found inside of himself to somehow say, oh, I'm going to believe in God. No, God revealed it to him by grace, and he was to then reveal Jesus to Israel through water baptism. John said that he received confirmation of Jesus Christ's Messiahship through divine revelation. Now, this is really important to recognize because it wasn't his opinion that made Jesus the Lamb of God. It came directly from God with authority and truth. God made it clear to John, supernaturally, that Jesus was indeed the Lamb of God. God said it would happen. The Spirit descended from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus. And John saw the entire thing with his eyes, his own eyes, watched it happen. That was supernatural. That was divine revelation and confirmation of the identity of Jesus Christ. And God commissioned John and confirmed the identity of the Messiah to him so that he could credibly, with the authority of God backing him, declare who the Messiah really was. Who's the Savior that we've been looking for? Jesus. And John said that with the authority of God. Lastly, John said Jesus was the Son of God. When John baptized Jesus, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. John knew this because God directly said it. God attested the Father to his own Son. God stood behind John's witness. Verse 34, And I have seen, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This was the moment. This was the apex. This was the mountaintop that John had prepared for his entire life. God had come. It was clear the Lamb of God, the Son of God, had come. If you look back over this passage, over John's life, you'll realize that God's hand was in it the whole way. His hand is everywhere in this. John never should have been born, but God brought life out of barrenness. God matured this man for a specific awesome purpose. God did that. God empowered John to boldly declare, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Son of God. None of this should have happened, but it did. It's history. Because God had something to communicate, and we have something to hear. I don't know what God is, is doing with your life. I don't know where he's taking you. I don't, I don't even know what a lot of you have been through. But I am confident that he has brought you here this morning for a very particular purpose. To reveal to you, to put in front of you the most powerful and profound thing you could possibly hear. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is that sacrifice which is actually able to look at your dirty past, to look at whatever you're shamed about, and to take care of it. Because of the cross. Because he took the wrath that was headed to you from the Father. He took it. It's paid for. It's taken care of. What you need to do is trust Jesus Christ with your whole heart or 
You still have that wrath of God pointed at you. It's coming in full force. And so you tell me, as you evaluate that picture, having a lamb or choosing to reject the lamb, having the joy and peace or choosing to live with the burden that life gives in your sin, which is, which is the pathway to greater joy? I'm choosing the lamb. Because in that road, in that straightaway, I can, I can just cruise. He removes the garbage of guilt, the dirt of disgrace, and he disposed of it in himself. He became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, the Lamb laid his life down. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this message of incredible hope, this message of the gospel that the Lamb of God actually takes away the sin of the world. Anyone who would believe, anyone who would follow him, anyone who would lay their sin burden down and receive the grace of a loving Father. So God, may we behold the Lamb May we look at Jesus and find in him everything that our heart has ever desired. In Christ's name we pray, amen.